just a word about next week before I start. Next week, I'm beginning a new series, Genesis 1 through 3. And if you've um, lived in that passage, Psalm, you know it is the foundational passage for all of Scripture. It is richer than we, we can almost take in. And so that's beginning next week. Uh, today, I'm, I'm going to do a, a one-time psalm. Uh, this is Psalm 131. It's considered one of the songs of ascent. Now, if you, some of, number of you have been with, with me to Israel. I hope a number of you are able to go in the future. But if you've been to Israel, you know that whatever direction around Jerusalem that you go to, you go up. And that's why they're called the Songs of Ascent, because these were worshipers journeying up to the temple to worship God. And they would sing these songs. That's what the word psalms means, songs. They would worship God with these songs of ascent. Now, between Psalm 120 and Psalm 134, we have 15 of these songs of ascent. This is my favorite, Psalm 131, and that's the one we're going to be looking at today. Would you please stand and let me read it? Psalm 131, the heading, which is part of the inspired text, says, A Song of Ascents of David. So we know it's this David song. And here it is. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Now in this brief but powerful psalm, right at the outset, we see part of the greatness of David. What is that greatness I'm referring to? It is his profound and genuine humility. Don't you just see it right at the outset when he says in his prayer, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. That is to say, Lord, my heart is not proud and my eyes are not haughty. He says, Lord God, it would be completely inappropriate for me, a mere human being, a mere man, to uh, sort of take this posture and attitude and perspective of arrogance and pride before you, a holy God. And I just cannot do that. Think about this, that David... The man who wrote this psalm, inspired by God, but he wrote this psalm, flowed deep out of his heart. This is the way he lived. Keep in mind, David is the king of Israel at its all-time zenith down to the present day. Never was Israel greater and the borders greater than when King David ruled the land. He was so great. He was powerful. He's wealthy. He was a brilliant military general. He was personally courageous. I mean, think about it as a young man, this giant Goliath, and he's fearless before him. He is a musician. He is a poet. The guy is just gifted. And when God sends his son from heaven to earth, does he not call him son of David? I mean, David had so much. But David, he had this profound humility before the Lord that he could say from deep place in his heart, Oh, Lord, my eyes are not lifted up. My heart is not uh, exalted. I humble myself. I humble myself. What David is saying here is, Lord, I do not exalt myself. 
I cannot exalt myself. I will not exalt myself because you alone are God. And I am a mere man. And David had the deep perspective that every good thing, all those things I just mentioned, every good thing in his life was a gift of God. I mean, think about that. Every single good thing he's ever experienced, just like with you and me, every good thing, every ability, every resource, everything good about you, it is a gift from God that you did not do anything to deserve. So how in the world can we be arrogant and haughty before God when he gave it all to us? David got that. David got that. And you and I have to ask ourselves this morning, do we get that? Do we get that? Is, that? is that a sort of our deep perspective in our life? It's all from God. So why in the world would we be concerned to impress people and exalt ourselves and live for self and, and to live in pride when every good thing comes from God? Humility is when you lie low and exalt the Lord. Humility is not so much minimizing yourself, but maximizing God. It's not putting yourself down, it's putting God up. You're not thinking about yourself at all. You're enthralled with God and the greatness and the glory and the goodness and the majesty and the grace and the kindness and love, the greatness of our God. You're enthralled with Him. Humility is when we recognize that God is God, and I'm not. Now that means, among a thousand other things, that means if God says something, I obey it. Because I'm not God. He's God. That means I submit my life before the Word of God, no matter what it says, no matter how uncomfortable it is for me, no matter how difficult it is for me. But God is God, and I humble myself before the Word of God, underneath the Word of God. If not... We are taking the posture of arrogance and haughtiness. Oliver Wendell Holmes, the great Supreme Court Justice, put it so powerfully, I think, when he said, the great act of faith is when man decides that he is not God. Is that crystal clear for you? God is God. I submit to him. I worship him. I don't live for myself in my name. Um, I love the little story of Michael Faraday, a British scientist in the 1800s who was a devoted follower of Christ. About 10 years ago, I read a book on science. It was called Five Equations. It was about the five equations that had so shaped mankind. You know, it'd be Einstein's E equal MC square and those kind of things. One of them came from Michael Faraday about electromagnetic induction, electromagnetic induction, whatever that means. And... Um, by the way, little parenthesis here, please don't give me a science book. I don't really like science books. <clears throat> but I read this one. Um, five equations. Now, the author talked about Faraday and his remarkable humility. He didn't mention a word about him being a devoted follower of Jesus. So he didn't tell us the source of that. But he, is, he was a devoted follower of Jesus. But here's the story. Michael Faraday... 1797 to 1867 or something like that, 1791, 1800s. Um, poor, hardworking errand boy as a boy, not a privileged background. And he grows up and he's this 
off-the-chart scientist. In fact, the author of this book said no one changed science as much as he had before or since. Wow. Uh, he was such a famed scientist of his day, he fills up seven large volumes of detailed laboratory notes. Twice, the, the top scientists in Britain, who are part of the Royal Society, twice they ask him to be uh, their president, but he declines, just feels like, no, I don't want to be president. Uh, the queen wants to make him a knight, and, and he, he politely declines, saying, you know, I, I just must remain plain Michael Faraday to the end. And so that's the kind of the perspective. No, no put on posture, but that's, that's his deep mindset. Toward the end of his life, uh, Queen Victoria, the queen at the time, said, well, at least let us uh, bury you alongside Isaac Newton and other great people in British history in Westminster Abbey. Let, let us at least do that. And, and he, he responds this way. I want to read it exactly. He, he said uh, he demurred, opting instead to be given up plain, simple funeral attended by none but my own relatives, followed by a gravestone of the most ordinary kind in the simplest earthly place. A profound perspective that only God is great. And I'm not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. So how could I possibly seek to impress others or exalt myself or live in proud? Michael Faraday got it. And he could say what David says in Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. None of us is free from the struggle with pride, are we? Sometimes people kindly affirm me for having some degree of humility, and I appreciate it. I'm gracious with them, but I know my heart. I know my struggles with pride, ego, wanting to impress people, wanting to sound good this morning. I know. And besides that, I also know this, that if I had not suffered from about 36 years of extreme agony with mental disease, it would be just terrible. And I, I want to live my one lifetime like David did with a deep perspective. Lord, it is not about me. It is all about you. With a deep perspective, there's only one pedestal, and it belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not mine. Is that your deep perspective this morning? If pride is the mother of all sin, then humility would be the root of of all virtue. It'd be so basic and important to us. It's not putting yourself down, it's putting God up, lifting God up. The Bible says, in fact, several times, Proverbs 3, James 4, I think it is, 1 Peter 5, it says several times, it says this, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, what would it be like for God to be opposed to you? Gulp. I mean, think about being on a shore when a tsunami is coming in, a hundred-foot wave coming in. It's something like that, isn't it? I mean, if God is opposed to you, you're going to get crushed. He's God, 
And he is well able to humble those who walk in pride. Friends, this is deep in our souls. This is deep in our hearts. It comes out in a thousand ways, that ugly uh, sin of pride. And we must get it that God alone is God. He alone is to be exalted. Now, pride has a thousand faces. We see one of those faces in the next lines. In Psalm 131, when David goes on to say, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I do not think that I can figure out things that are beyond me. There are some things I can figure out that are okay for us humans, but there are some things that belong to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Do you know that? That there are some things that we humans cannot understand and figure out. Part of humility is resting in that, accepting that, and submitting to God in that. Can I just give you a half dozen examples from Scripture of things that are beyond us, that are too great and too marvelous for us, and we just trust God, the Trinity? I mean, the Bible says there is only one God, period. And yet, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. One God, three persons, co-eternal, co-equal, the same in substance, distinct in subsistence. I mean, figure that out. It's beyond us. It's beyond us. But we accept it. We trust the Word of God. We, we humble ourselves before the Word of God. Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man, I mean, this baby, uh, a, a fertilized egg in Mary, a teenager's womb, God, are you kidding me? That's beyond me. That's beyond you. We submit to what God's Word says and believe it and embrace it. The sovereignty of God and the free will and human responsibility. We cannot figure that out, can we? The attitude of pride says, I'm going to take this line of truth, but I'm going to turn away from this line of truth. No, no, no. Uh, we accept both because God says them both. We think they contradict. God treats them as friends. God is the sovereign God, and if you're in the kingdom of God, it is because of the sovereign grace and election of God. Yay, God. But the Bible says over and over and over, believe, trust God. You're responsible. You're accountable. You accept them both fully, fully. I'll tell you the hardest theological problem. I got some real questions about some things like the Holocaust and tsunamis and earthquakes and cancer with little babies and all kind of things. But here's my biggest problem. The reality of hell. Forever. Hell. And this is what some people do, is they wiggle out of it. And that's in their pride. As hard as it is for me, the Bible teaches it clearly, no one more so than Jesus Christ, and I trust my God. He's God. He knows what he's doing. I, I, I submit to the Word of God. Now, this is what David is saying. He's saying, uh, there are some things that are beyond me, but Lord, I trust you. I trust you. Now, all of those are theological matters, and you probably haven't been losing too much sleep about them, but let me raise the bar a little bit. What about when one of your kids gets cancer? 
What about when you have unremitting back pain? It's killing you. What about some of you can relate to some of the mental disease pain that is almost unbearable? What about, uh, man, uh, you've unjustly and uh, you've lost your job and you're scared to death about, you know, how you're going to provide? I mean, this ramps it up. And biblical faith, biblical humility says there are some things too great and too, they're beyond me. And I'm not going to fully understand them. Now, every one of us knows about these things. And here's a big mistake that we make. We think that the main question here is why? God, why are you doing this? Why have you allowed this? That is not the question. Just respectfully, that is not the question. You can ask it, but just, that's not the question. Here's the question. Lord, what do, you, what do I need to know about this? Lord, what, what are you doing about this? What, what, what do I need to learn from this? And this is the attitude of, of childlike humility and trust that David takes here. Lord, there are some things that are just beyond me. And you will never know fully the whys of your pain and your suffering until you get to heaven. Why, why did I have unending agony for a long time that I would not want on anybody? I don't know. I don't know. I'll know one day when I get to heaven. It's faith now, sight then. And part of biblical humility and faith is just to rest in a sovereign God who took our pain and suffering on the cross. We're not talking about an a, a arms-folded Buddha who's withdrawn from the world. We're talking about God who came to this earth as a flesh-and-blood man and died on a bloody cross. That's the God we serve. That's the only God there is. And we will trust Him. We will trust Him. So whatever you're going through today, next week, next year, next decade... Uh, you can ask the question why, but just don't really expect a full answer. That's why you need faith. The question is what? Lord, what are you doing? What do I need to know? How do you want me to respond and learn? The book of Job. Ten kids did he lose. Ten kids did he lose. Ten. Had all these questions. God comes to him at the end of the book. Does he tell him why? Not one word. Why? But he didn't know, need to know why because God had showed up. God was there. If God's there, that's enough. You don't have to know why if God shows up. If God shows up, that's enough. And my Bible tells me that Jesus Christ has promised, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. I will always be right here with you as you go through the valley of the shadow. shadow. What's it say? Man, I'm out of, out of practice here, aren't I? Yeah, that valley. Valley of the shadow of death. Okay. Okay. You're with me, though. God, His presence, that's what we need. And we trust our God. It's part of humility. 
It's part of humility. It's part of childlike, humble trust and faith. Isn't that Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding about the wise. Lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. You acknowledge him. You acknowledge that he's the Lord. He's God. He is so much greater than me. I'm not God. I trust my God. Acknowledge he's the Lord. All right. Okay, in contrast to fretting over the things that we do not understand and, and, and living in an attitude and a posture of pride, David describes the humble trust in verse 2 when he says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul with me, within me. Now, think what he's saying here. He's not talking about the little infant nursing baby who's resting at his mother's breast. That's not what he's talking about because... That, that baby may be calm and quiet for the minutes that he or she is nursing, but all the other time, if that baby gets hungry at all, it's not calm and quiet. It's going to be, he's going to let everybody know, I'm not happy. And if I'm not happy, nobody's happy. And that could be in the middle of the night, it could be on the airplane, but that's not a picture of calm and quiet, a hungry baby that's not weaned. But if the baby's four or five years old, then that baby has learned some things. That baby has learned that, you know, if I'm a little hungry here, just you know, my, my mother is good and she's going to take care of me. She's going to get some food to me. That baby has learned, that four or five-year-old toddler, that preschooler has learned, my mother is good and will take care of me. David is saying, God, I have learned that you are good and you'll take care of me. Have you learned that? Have you learned that? God is good, and he will take care of me, no matter what, no matter what. Humble trust. It, it, it's the picture Jesus gives us in Matthew 18 about the little child. Catch this, Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's not humility. Pride off the charts. What does Jesus do? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You want to know what greatness is before me? Look at David. Look at Michael Faraday. Look at the little child. Humble trust. Humble trust. In fact, you don't get into the kingdom without humbling yourself like that. Humble trust. And crying out to God like in Luke 18. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's, that's how you get in the kingdom. As you admit your sin, you call out to a Savior. You humble yourself. I need a Savior. And so uh, Jesus is talking about Psalm, uh, exactly the same thing as David in Psalm 131. Humble, childlike trust. Okay, one more verse. One more verse, and this one, David has been talking about his own experience, but now he turns to the people of Israel and charges them. And he says, Oh, Israel... Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now, when he says hope in the Lord, that's the same thing, the same point as trust in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Look to the Lord. You're in an awful jam today and you're hurting bad. Don't fundamentally rely on your own resources and smarts and network and, uh, to figure this thing out. But your hope is in the Lord. It's in the Lord. 
hope in the Lord. You don't take a posture of, of you know, just demanding and fretting and irritated with God, but, but, you're, but you're taking the picture of a, of a toddler trusting his mom and saying, I'm hope, my hope is in the Lord. It's in the Lord. I hope in the Lord. It is trust. It is humble trust. We started with humility, pure humility. It bled over into humble trust, and then that trust becomes accented because humility and trust always go together. If I humble myself before God, I will trust God. If I trust God, I will humble myself before God. They go, they go together. A life of faith, a life of humility, they go together. Hope in the Lord. This is what humble trust looks like. I once, uh, somebody, I got an email about this kind of thing, and, and, and it was simple. It said, good morning, <clears throat> this is God. I will be handling all your problems today. I will not need your help, so have a good day. <laughs> Humble trust. There was a pastor sometime back in New York City by the name of Bruce Larson, and he, he, he worked on Fifth Avenue down from Rockefeller Center. I think that's where Fifth Avenue is. And... Um, Sometimes when he had somebody that came to him and he was talking with them and they were really troubled and burdened and got some problem, he said, would you just take a walk with me? And he'd walk them down to Rockefeller Center in front of the RCA building and he'd show them the statue of Atlas, this powerfully built man holding the world on his shoulders. And, and though he's so powerfully built, you know, kind of perfectly formed human, uh, you know, he's just straining to hold the world. A and Bruce would say to him, he'd say, now that's one way to live carrying the world on your shoulders, straining and striving. That's one way to live. But walk with me across the street, and he'd walk across Fifth Avenue to St. Patrick's Cathedral, and he would take them way back in the back of St. Patrick's Cathedral, past the high altar, and there was a small statue of Jesus as a boy. I Googled it this morning, saw it. So Jesus is eight or nine years old, and in his left hand is the world, and he is holding it, no effort whatsoever. And Bruce Larson said, and that's another way to live. You can give your burdens to Jesus, and he will carry it for you. Dear church, whom I love, are you carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders, or have you given your burden to Jesus, who says to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why don't we do this? Stand with me, please. And why don't we um, You take a few moments of silent prayer. And, and is this the posture, the deep mindset? Humility? Trusting God for the things we don't understand? Trusting God for the burdens of life? Letting Jesus carry your burdens. Just talk with the Lord about that a few moments. And I'll close this. <clears throat> Lord, we got some big old burdens here today. All of us do, but some of us, Lord, we're in the middle of it. It's just killing us. Lord, we need your grace to trust you. Give us grace, Lord, to put all our hope in the Lord. 
thank you, Lord, that you will be right here with us.